Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about two of Bach's sonatas for violin and harpsichord. These works are assumed to have been composed when Bach was employed at the court of Curtin and may well have been revised in Leipzig. A number of commentators have suggested that some, perhaps even most of these sonatas for violin and harpsichord obligato, may have originally been trio sonatas, that is, works originally composed for two equal melody instruments accompanied by a continuo part. And that may indeed be the case. It is certainly true that each of these sonatas is conceived in terms of three independent and distinctive parts, which is obviously impossible when the solo instrument is accompanied by continuo alone. And at least for some of the sonatas, the relationship demonstrated between the violin and the right hand of the harpsichord part does resemble the typical relationship between the two melody instruments, quite often two violins, heard in a typical trio sonata. That is, the voices are considered more or less equal in melodic importance, sometimes echoing each other's motives, sometimes intertwining, and sometimes harmonizing in thirds and sixths. But it is also true that the right hand of the harpsichord part at times relates to the left hand of the harpsichord part more along the lines of a traditional keyboard sonata, for example, sharing in interlocking patterns rather than relating to the violin as an equal duetting partner. So, if some of these works began life as actual trio sonatas, it seems reasonable to suspect that Bach may have made substantial modifications to them along the way. We'll begin with the sonata in B minor, BWV 1014. It's in four movements, slow, fast, slow, fast, in the manner of a sonata da chiesa. The first movement in B minor, 6-4 time, and marked adagio, begins with the harpsichord, presenting a simple but somewhat distinctive melodic idea in the right hand. It starts with a sustained note of three plus beats on the fifth scale degree, doubled a third lower. This sustained note leads to a series of eighth notes, starting one half step higher and descending slowly with a series of paired notes, alternately accented and unaccented. It sounds like this in a simplified version. Against this right-hand activity, the left hand provides a leisurely arpeggio of the tonic chord, given a little ornamental twist at the top with a lower neighbor figure at the beginning of the measure. As you heard in my example, the second measure of the right-hand melody recreates the first down a step as the harmony moves toward the dominant, and the third measure continues the sequence, with the left hand now picking up on the descending line of the right hand and with the mostly parallel thirds in the right hand now blossoming into wider intervals as we hint briefly at E minor. In the fourth bar, against a gradual ascending line in the left hand, the right hand melody begins a long, gentle descending line in eighth notes harmonized in thirds and sixths in preparation for the entrance of the violin. So here are the first four measures, right and left hands together. Thank you. 
When the violin enters, it does so quietly, almost unobtrusively. You could hear a little bit of it in the example I just played. Also on the fifth scale degree, with another sustained note, as the harpsichord alternates dominant and tonic chords beneath it by means of a continuing flow of eighth notes, now harmonized in sixths. The violin's opening note tied across the bar and sustaining for all of ten full beats before it breaks into a florid undulation of sixteenth notes presents an interesting expressive conundrum right off the bat. Of course, we have no marked crescendos at this point in music history, but it would be an exceptional performance in which the violinist did not make a gradual, perhaps subtle crescendo before finally breaking into the swirling sixteenth notes which cap the sustained opening note. In some performances, this crescendo-like swell is quite noticeable, in others very much less so. In the example I'm going to use, this pseudo-crescendo is quite noticeable, particularly toward the tail end of the note. I'm not suggesting that the performance I'm using here is historically insensitive. It has more to do with the fact that a long, sustained tone like this one almost demands that the performer do something with it, dynamically speaking, before it peaks into a more florid passage of sixteenth notes, regardless of the documented performance practices of the period in which the piece was written. At any rate, this idea of a long sustained note followed by a faster-moving melismatic passage, an idea clearly adapted from the opening harpsichord theme, dominates not only the next several measures, but much of the entire movement. But the fact is that the violin's florid passage in sixteenth notes is quite a bit more elaborate than the original harpsichord passage in eighth notes, and has a somewhat different shape as well. Just two measures after the violin presents this idea on F-sharp, it comes back with the same idea of a fourth on B-natural, although the metric placement is a little different this time around. And then, again two bars later, the same basic idea is repeated by the violin on E, although the final florid passage is even more elaborate this time around, as we head back in the direction of B minor, having flirted a bit with the key of E minor on the way there. Against all this activity in the violin, the harpsichord right hand continues with a similar flow of eighth notes employing both parallel thirds and sixths, while the left hand stays mainly with its slow-moving, ascending arpeggios providing harmonic support. Let's hear it from the entrance of the violin, bar 5, to the cadence on B minor in bar 11. Now, I don't want to give the impression that for all practical purposes, the movement is over at this point. It's certainly true that the thematic elements I've focused on continue to dominate, but new ideas do appear along the way. For example, in measure 13 in the right hand of the keyboard part, 
Bach introduces a little three-note motive starting on the offbeat, which begins to play a major role in the middle of the texture right away, and continues to make its presence felt throughout most of the rest of the movement. And, by the way, at this point, the texture also expands to an actual four parts, and it stays that way, actually getting even busier and more complex for quite a few measures after that. The original thematic statement by the violin continues to return in varied form, often truncated somewhat in regard to that initial sustained note, but the original harpsichord version of the theme returns as well, and rather dramatically so when it is switched over to the violin, which plays a version of it in mostly parallel sixths. The result is particularly impressive as we hear a final preparation for our ultimate return to the original tonic of B minor. At this point, the violin's double stops make their maximum impact as they sustain powerfully dissonant intervals within a dominant ninth chord, the climax of the movement, both in terms of sonority and harmonic tension. Following this dramatic stroke, we return to B minor and the relatively composed mood of the opening measures. But even here, though the mood seems outwardly calm, or at least relatively so, the inner tension prevails through to the end of the movement. Here are the last 10 measures of the movement. The next movement is, unsurprisingly for work in the Sonata da Chiesa style, based on fugal imitation. It's also in B minor in duple meter and marked allegro. It begins with a lively, attractive subject in the violin, starting on F-sharp, the fifth of the scale, and making use of a distinctive rhythmic figure, a long, short, short, dactylic figure of a quarter note followed by two eighths which leads directly to its mirror image, a short, short, long figure of two-eighths followed by a quarter note, all of this in the first measure. The second bar slows the rhythmic momentum down a bit, but adds a distinctive trill on the downbeat. The third measure makes use of a more conventional melodic pattern, which takes us to a cadence on the downbeat of the fourth bar. As you'll hear in a minute in my simplified example, the subject comes to a convincing conclusion at that point, but the violin's line doesn't actually stop or even slow down, continuing on with a familiar type of figuration pattern featuring an embedded ascending line of eighth notes which directs us toward F-sharp minor, in which key the first fugal answer enters. This little figuration-based transitional tag comes to have great importance later on, serving as the basis for much of the episodic material we encounter later in the movement. 
In my simplified example, you'll also hear, beginning in bar 5, the subject imitated at the fifth by the right hand of the harpsichord, and the continuing violin line, which serves as a counter-subject against the imitation when it enters. My example left out the left hand of the harpsichord part, and even the right hand for the first four bars. Bach provides only the left hand bass line for the first four measures, with the performer filling the chords in based on standard continual principles until we reach measure five, where the right hand part, fully notated, enters with the fugal imitation. After the imitation is completed, we hear a brief episodic passage based on the spinning out of the figuration pattern I referred to earlier. And then, the left-hand bass part enters with the subject back in B minor, the original counter-subject now transferred from the violin to the right hand of the harpsichord. Following the second answer, we hear another, somewhat more substantial episodic passage, also relying on that original figuration pattern, which directs us briefly to E minor, and then again to F sharp minor, where the left-hand bass line once again reintroduces the subject. After a few measures, the subject then reappears in the violin, back in B minor, and we then encounter a more extended episode with a few new ideas combining with the now very familiar figuration passage, all of which work together to eventually take us to a new contrasting section of the movement. Let's hear an actual performance to that point. This contrasting section, of which you just heard a very small part, is not actually in the middle of the movement, more the beginning of the second third, and it does use familiar thematic materials, but it nevertheless presents a strong sense of contrast with the opening fugal section. First of all, it's in D major, and the change of mode transforms the nature of the original fugue subject pretty significantly, and it's in D major for a while although eventually it heads toward G major and E minor. Second, the texture here is largely homophonic. There's some interesting interplay of motives back and forth occasionally between the parts, but the overall effect is rather like embellished block chords, at least initially. The second four bars of this new section simply repeat the first four bars up a step, and although the texture begins to get a little more diversified and complex as we proceed, and the subject or variance of it is presented in new keys, the listener is likely to be struck by the relative simplicity of this section and the degree to which it abounds in straightforward sequential repetitions of relatively brief passages. In fact, this section relies on sequential repetitions of the subject, especially the first two bars of it, 
even more than may be apparent, since many of the repetitions come in the left hand of the harpsichord and may well be lost in the violin-dominated texture. Here's a bit of this more homophonic contrasting section. Near the end of my example, you could hear the beginning of another transitional passage marked by the long-sustained A in the violin, which takes us from the more homophonic section back to the original tonic and, eventually, back to the fugal imitation with which the movement began. This passage closely parallels the one which transported us to the more homophonic section in the first place, although the roles here are reversed. The sustained note had previously been provided by a harpsichord trill, and the violin had previously provided figuration patterns now contributed by the harpsichord. Before we actually arrive back in the original key of B minor, there is a false return of sorts of the fugue subject in F sharp minor, but it's only the briefest interruption of the transitional episode, after which the sustained trill note returns to the harpsichord, and a few measures later, the real return of the fugue subject takes place, heard first in the violin and duly imitated at the fifth, four bars later in the right-hand harpsichord part. And then, after the same four measures spinning out of that fourth-bar figuration passage, the final answer enters in the left-hand harpsichord part, once again somewhat obscured by all the activity above it. This is the last bit of imitation we hear, but it is not the last reference to the fugal subject which, after a brief episode quite similar to the first, we hear once again in the violin before the drive to the final cadence, not unexpectedly based largely on the same figuration pattern we've encountered several times before. It's a charming movement, almost exuberant, and for the most part, quite easy to follow. The next movement, a slow movement marked andante in D major and in common time, is another lovely movement, both graceful and beguiling. It begins with another sustained tone, a whole note in the violin, tied across the bar to the first sixteenth note of the next measure, and leading into a flow of mostly descending sixteenth notes. Here's a simplified example showing the first two bars of the melody. Against this, the harpsichord provides a fairly generic arpeggio-based pattern, but one which implies movement both within the right-hand chords and in the strong stepwise motion in the left hand. The left hand repeats itself in bar two, but the right hand at that point takes to doubling the violin melody mostly in thirds and sixths. In the third measure, we encounter a distinctive new idea in the violin, which will play a very important role, albeit in various guises, as the movement proceeds. 
It begins with an eighth note upbeat and moves to a series of four sixteenths, which feature a series of pairs of sixteenths, always slurred together, alternately consonant and dissonant notes. Here's a simplified example. Against this new idea, the left hand continues as in the first two bars, but the right hand contributes an embellishment of the first melodic idea I played a minute ago, which, conveniently, harmonizes nicely with the new melodic idea I just played, the one that began with the paired and slurred sixteenth notes. We cadence on D major halfway through bar four, and the next four measures replicate to a considerable extent the first four, now having shifted to A major, the key of the dominant. In the second half of measure eight, we hear the first unexpected harmonic maneuver as we veer briefly into A minor, setting up a chromatic passage that takes us eventually to B minor. Here's an actual performance taking us that far. Arriving in B minor, the harpsichord left hand appears set to repeat the pattern with which it began the movement, while the violin revisits the second thematic idea I played, eventually expanding on it with a series of sequential repetitions, often accompanied by the harpsichord right hand in thirds. Eventually, this spinning out of idea number two takes us to F sharp minor and then to D major, where we encounter a virtual repeat of the opening bars. We'll hear an excerpt beginning with the passage in B minor through the modulation to F sharp minor and the slightly varied restatement of the opening measures in D major. Although we hear an awful lot of thematic idea number two here, there are a few new ideas introduced as well, most notably a figure employing two large ascending leaps in a row outlining a triad, heard first in the harpsichord but more prominently displayed in the violin. This relatively expansive motive, which, heard for the third time, marks the arrival of F-sharp minor, provides a nice break from the otherwise consistent flow of sixteenth notes and has a role to play in the final measures of the movement.
The modulation back to D major, which occurred near the end of that example, does not quite conclude Bach's tonal wanderings for this movement. In the last few measures, he tilts first toward G major and then tonicizes the dominant chord, A major, never for a moment leaving behind the key thematic elements we have already referred to as he moves toward the final cadence. The final movement, back in B minor in 3-4 time in March Allegro, is another fugue, this time in the traditional binary form, with both sections repeated. The first section is taken up by a concise and energetic little fugue, or more accurately a single fugal exposition, whereas the fugal subject in movement two had been introduced with only a bass line and supporting chords for accompaniment, this fugal theme is accompanied right from the beginning with a rather busy counter subject in the right hand of the harpsichord. Here's a simplified example of just the fugue subject itself, starting on F-sharp, the fifth of the tonic chord, and contrasting repeated eighth notes with a quicker lower neighbor tone figure a fourth higher, and in the fourth bar, a gradually descending line exploiting a repeated pair of 32nd notes resolving down to a 16th note. Here's what it sounds like. The counter subject, and especially active one as I suggested earlier, consists of a near constant flow of 16th notes, a mixture of scale patterns and arpeggio figures. After four bars, the harpsichord right hand enters with the subject up a fifth as the counter subject is shifted to the violin and the key moves toward F sharp minor. After a transitional bar, the harpsichord left hand reasserts the subject a couple of octaves below its original appearance. At that point, the dynamic final measure of the theme is split off and spun out against a new syncopated figure in the violin. Shortly thereafter, the harpsichord right hand returns again with the subject, now an octave lower, against the counter subject in the left hand. A short cadential phrase, abounding with trills, takes us to the end of the section, which ends on the dominant to prepare us for the repeat. We'll hear the entire first section without the repeat. The second section of the movement focuses on the same theme, although the harmonic context is very different, I'll say more about that in a minute, and also exploits imitation of a sort, but the end result is rather different from the first section, more of a spinning out of the fugue theme rather than an actual fugal exposition. We begin the second section in F-sharp minor, a typical ploy in binary movements of this sort, but this time the subject appearing in the violin or at least the first two bars of the subject, enters on the third of the chord rather than on the fifth where it originally appeared. And although the reference to the subject is still perfectly clear, it has a very different feel about it, even though the original countersubject and bass line are both present, at least initially. Typically for the second part of a binary form like this, Bach makes brief visits to various other key centers as the second section begins. After a single measure in F-sharp minor, 
we quickly move in the direction of E minor, where, just two bars later, the first two measures of the subject are presented in the right hand of the harpsichord, which has switched parts with the violin. Two bars later, we're in D major, where the left hand of the harpsichord takes its turn. Things continue to move quickly, and after three more measures, we find ourselves in A major, where the violin offers up a full-length version of the subject, all four bars of it, complete and in order, and starting on the fifth of the triad, as in the original version. Four measures later, we've shifted to E minor, and the harpsichord right hand imitates the violin up a fifth. But the proper imitation ends there. The harpsichord left hand delivers the first two bars of the subject, and the violin does the same a couple of bars later, before lapsing into the spinning out process. But as intensive as Bach's use of the fugue subject's motives is, he does introduce new ideas here and there. As the last bar of the fugue subject is spun out, that gradually descending pattern involving the two 32nd notes passing to a 16th, Bach invents a clever new interlocking figuration pattern to go with it. Interestingly, the final reference to the fugue theme, which occurs immediately after we've worked our way back to the original tonic of B minor, occurs on C natural, an unexpected chromatic alteration in the key, and part of an unusual first inversion C major chord. This type of chord, built on the Lord's second scale degree in the key of B minor, is often referred to as a Neapolitan sixth chord. Bach didn't invent the chord, of course. It had been an occasional use by composers since the Middle Baroque, and it is by no means atypical for Bach to introduce a chromatic chord in the measures leading up to a final cadence. Still, Bach's use of it here is a bit unusual. The chord sustains for two full measures and appears, at least initially, to resolve in a somewhat unconventional way. This type of chord normally passes to a second inversion tonic chord or to a dominant chord, but here it resolves to a somewhat ambiguous chord, a leading tone diminished chord, which is later clarified as a dominant chord, before heading toward the final tonic. The ambiguity is short-lived to be sure, but it adds a special quality to the movement's final cadence. Here is the second half of the movement. Next at Sonata Number no. 2 in A Major, another impressive work, although one with a very different personality. The first movement is a slow one in 6-8 time, the exact tempo a bit difficult to determine because the score indicates only dolce, 
which is an expressive indicator rather than specifically a tempo-related one, although it does seem to imply an unhurried tempo. And, of course, a slow or at least moderate tempo can generally be assumed for the first movement of any work composed in the Sonata da Chiesa style. The first important thematic idea announced in the violin against a tonic pedal and the harpsichord left hand starts on the tonic and begins with a descending fourth and then gently undulates up the scale, employing a prominent trill on the fifth beat. Here's a simplified example of the first two measures. Now let's take a close look at one particular motive, starting on the second half of the first measure, leaving out the descending fourth, which begins the movement, and ending on the downbeat of the second bar. We'll hear this motive played in a simplified example by the harpsichord. We're going to call this the rising trill motive, and I'm singling it out because it plays such an important role, often quite independently of the first half of the measure, as the movement proceeds. After the first two measures, the harpsichord right hand imitates the opening bars at the octave, and the left hand comes in a measure later, imitating only the first bar. But in the meantime, the violin continues with a new phrase, wonderfully expansive at first, and leading into the next important thematic idea, one that is absolutely instrumental to the cohesion of the movement. Here's a simplified example, including just the violin melody from bars 3 through 6, with this new phrase occurring in measure 4. The novel elements to this second important thematic idea include the suspension to a dissonance on the downbeat of bar 3 and the flow of sixteenths that follow it in measure 4. Whereas the sixteenth note flow in the second measure undulated upwards, the undulating pattern here is descending. And yet this second idea, as you may well have noticed, is not completely new. The descending undulating pattern, which is at least somewhat new, is in measure 4 followed by the distinctive motive from measure 1, which I referred to a minute ago as the rising trill motive, which in turn passes in measure 5 to the same descending undulating pattern we heard in measure 4, except this time up a step. And these motives keep recurring again and again as we proceed. I'm not going to try to pinpoint each occurrence, but they'll be easy enough to hear. Here's an actual performance of the first nine measures concluding with a modulation to E major, the dominant of the original key of A major. The last measure you heard in that example, which is largely a harmonized broken third pattern, is really just a gentle embellishment of the new tonic, E major, 
but it plays an important role in the final measures of the movement. At measure 9, the original theme is presented by the harpsichord right hand in E major and is subsequently imitated by the violin and, partially again, by the harpsichord left hand. Soon we modulate to B minor and shortly thereafter to F sharp minor. It is at this point that we get a sense of a new section. It's not that the thematic elements are brand new, but the texture thins out a bit here and there, and the rising trill motive I mentioned earlier now begins to dominate. At first, in the left hand of the harpsichord, where it is stated again and again on different pitch levels, and eventually, in all the voices, the entrances piling up one after another. Meanwhile, the tonality is rather fluid. We appear to be in D major for a while, but finally work our way back to A major, six measures before the end, and we conclude the movement quietly without ever referencing the original theme again, although motives from the second important thematic idea I pointed out also play a role in the final measures. Here is a performance of the somewhat contrasting section beginning in F-sharp minor. The next movement, marked Allegro Assai and in A major again, is a more conventional fugue in 3-4 time. And yet, as we've seen a number of times before, it's more than a series of fugal expositions and contrasting episodes, since it also demonstrates kinship with the concerto style, with clear 2D sections giving way to extended solo sections. This is something we wouldn't normally expect in a sonata for violin and harpsichord obligato, but we know that Bach has a history of injecting concerto-like elements into works for smaller ensembles, and even solo keyboard works, so we really shouldn't be surprised. The movement begins with a reasonably conventional fugue subject, five measures long, beginning with two pick-up sixteenth notes and leading to repeated figures of eighth notes followed by two sixteenths, which sweep up the scale starting from the tonic before trailing off to a series of eighth notes, all in the first two measures. Here's a simplified example of the fugue theme played by the violin. It's accompanied by a continual bass line with chord symbols indicating to the keyboardist how to fill in the chords above the bass line. My example includes the violin melody and the bass line, but not the continual chords. As you could hear after the first two bars, the rhythmic profile of measure two is continued, but the melody is now dominated by triadic leaps ornamented by the occasional lower neighbor figure. 
the pattern heard first in bar three is repeated up a third in bar four and up another third in bar five, leading us to a cadence on the dominant. Once we arrive on the dominant chord, the first fugal answer enters at the fifth in the harpsichord right hand, as the violin goes on to an equally vigorous countersubject, the left-hand bass line occasionally echoing motives from the subject as well. After an added measure to take us back to tonic, the left hand begins its imitation in earnest, while the right hand picks up the original countersubject and the violin adds a new, slower-moving countersubject, characterized by suspensions across the bar lines. Here's a performance of the initial exposition. Arriving back on tonic, violin and both right and left hands all join together for a rousing reiteration of only the first bar of the subject, after which we lapse into the first episode, which, as I suggested earlier, has the quality of a busy solo section after the initial ritonello in a concerto movement. It's the harpsichord right hand that takes the first solo, with repeated figuration patterns combining ascending triads and upper neighbor figures against slower-moving triadic patterns in the violin. But soon the two harpsichord parts are switched around and the violin contributes a sustained upper pedal on B as we move toward E major. After eight bars of this sort of activity and a clever modulation to B minor, the fugue subject is reintroduced in the violin, at least the first two bars are, while the right and left hands of the harpsichord briefly sustain their near-frantic movement in sixteenth notes. Two measures later, the right hand of the harpsichord imitates those first two bars on the same pitch level, and we probably expect the left hand to follow suit, but the left hand only asserts the third measure of the subject, and repeats it not a third higher each time, as in the original presentation of the subject, but a step lower each time. But these fragmented references to the fugue theme are fairly short-lived and before long, we return to the virtuoso figuration patterns heard at the beginning of the episode, primarily in the harpsichord right hand. Here's an example beginning at the end of the original exposition and continuing through this section I just described. Right at the end of my example, we've returned to A major, although the cadence that puts us there is not particularly definitive, 
and we hear a complete statement of the fugue theme in the left hand of the harpsichord. I'll admit, however, that it's somewhat overshadowed by the plunging 16th note passages in the violin, which are based to some extent on the original countersubject. So, back in the original tonic, having heard a full statement of the subject in the left hand of the harpsichord, we might expect to hear it imitated properly by the violin and harpsichord right hand, but we don't. This is not a full-blown fugal exposition, but in terms of concerto form, it could be considered something of a brief internal ritornello, especially since it passes quickly to another solo section, similar to the one you just heard, although again parts have been switched around to some extent. This is one of those sections with its near constant flow of 16th notes that seems very Vivaldi-like, and frankly a little more machine-like than we're used to hearing from Bach, although he does indulge in some clever harmonic ploys along the way that we might not expect from Vivaldi. In the meantime, the violin has taken center stage with its rapid multiple-stop arpeggios, some of them rather dissonant above a long pedal on E. Even here, references to the fugue theme are heard mostly in the harpsichord right hand as we lead up to the final, full exposition of the fugue subject on the original tonic. In fact, an exact replication of the opening 30 bars of the movement. We'll hear the final bit of this final episode leading to the beginning of the concluding fugal exposition. The next movement, marked on Dante un poco, in common time and F-sharp minor, is more remarkable than it first appears. It begins with a rather expressive melody, the first four measures of which are probably the most memorable. Here's a simplified example of those first four bars. After an undulating descent from C-sharp, the fifth of the scale, we hear what is perhaps the most overtly expressive gesture, an ascending minor sixth harmonized by a diminished chord. The melody then continues to ascend, employing the raised sixth and seventh scale degrees of the melodic minor scale to ascend to the upper tonic. But the ascent does not stop there. After backtracking briefly, the melody continues its stepwise journey, now employing some dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms and finally peaking on the high C-sharp an octave above where it started. But these opening bars, as attractive as they are, are not the main feature here, because the fact is that the entire movement exhibits canonic imitation between the violin, which leads the way, and the right hand of the harpsichord, which imitates it at the unison, or same pitch level, four beats later. And yet, despite the strictness of this form, the movement is still remarkably rich in feeling and implied emotional content. 
In some ways, it's not a surprise. Since Bach is known to be a master of canonic form, some of his canons in the musical offering are actually gorgeous pieces. Still, it's not necessarily something we would expect in a sonata for two instruments. The opening melodic statement is 11 bars altogether with a modulation to A major by bar 5 and a cadence on C sharp minor by bar 11. We'll hear a performance of the first 11 bars, the violin and imitating right hand, both supported by staccato chord arpeggios in 16th notes in the harpsichord left hand. The opening 11 bars are never repeated in order again, but various phrases are repeated, often in different keys, and often beginning on different beats within the measure. In the last four and a half bars, the first four measures are brought back at the original pitch level, although starting halfway through the measure, and after the imitation in the right hand is played out, the movement comes to an understated close on the dominant of the key. The final movement is a fast one, as custom dictates, and in this case it's particularly so, marked presto with two beats to a measure. While it's a bit surprising to encounter a canonic slow movement, it's not at all surprising to find that the last movement is fugal. The first of two repeated sections begins with the melody presented by the violin. The subject is four bars long, with a two-measure continuation which directs it toward the key of E major. It's accompanied by a bass line in the left hand and chord symbols for the keyboard player to interpret in the right. Here's a simplified example of the first six bars. It's another lively tune, the opening descending forth echoing the theme of the first movement, and it picks up rhythmic momentum as it proceeds. The harpsichord right hand comes in with an answer at the fifth in measure six against the violin counter subject that begins with a flow of eighth notes but soon proceeds to longer note values, quickening again when the fugal answer itself decreases momentum. At measure 13, the harpsichord left hand comes in with the subject an octave lower than the original against a variant of the original counter subject. Here's a performance of the first fugal exposition.
The second section of the movement, in E major and a bit longer at 67 bars, begins with a new subject, one clearly related to the first, but even busier, rhythmically speaking, including a couple of quick little two-sixteenth eighth-note combinations and employing one notable descending octave leap. This new idea is heard first in the harpsichord right hand, and the violin comes in four bars later at the fourth, almost as if the answer has come before the subject here. The bass line played by the harpsichord left hand is an active one, a bit more so than in the first section of the movement, and occasionally echoes motives from the new subject, but it doesn't participate in the imitation in any continuous way. We'll hear an excerpt starting at the beginning of the second section. Bach introduces some clever twists and turns within the second section of the movement, but I'm only going to reference one of them. Bach naturally modulates around a bit, visiting B minor among other keys, and at one point produces an emphatic cadence in the key of C sharp minor. But while the cadence is as secure as you could possibly want, the new key is not, and in a clever harmonic stroke, Bach immediately reinterprets the C sharp tonic note as the third scale degree in A major, the original tonic for the movement, and almost magically we are back in the original key and the harpsichord right hand announces the fugue subject once more on the original pitch level. But even at this point, things do not proceed as we might expect them to. The violin is indecisive about whether it really wants to jump in with an imitation of the subject, but belatedly decides to do so. Once again, the harpsichord left hand declines to participate in the imitation, although, as usual, it makes plenty of references to certain motives from the fugue subject, and, after a final reference to the fugue subject by the violin and its overlapping echo by the harpsichord right hand, we race to the finish with all three of the key motives from the fugue subject blazing away in various parts as we come to the final cadence. It's a very clever ending, although, as usual, some of the interplay between the parts may be lost to the listener because of the dominance of the violin's voice. That's it for this episode, but we are not finished with Bach's sonatas for violin and harpsichord obligato. We'll look at two more in the next episode.